History has a plan. We're going somewhere. God has a plan. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, everything that was made through him, by him, and for him will be placed under his feet, and Jesus will reign forever and ever. How many of you know that the Bible teaches us that that is true and that we can trust it this morning? If you would, take out your copy of God's Word and either open it up or turn it on. And if you open it up today, join me on that page right between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Most of our translations have just a single page separating the old from the new, and I want you to join me right there on that page this morning, that page that separates the last Old Testament prophet Malachi from the first New Testament gospel, Matthew. If you're looking at your phone to use your Bible today, as I did at the state convention this last week, just go to the page that has all the books of the Bible on it before we turn to where we're going to read, and just join me there for a second. That single page that you're finding in between the two testaments represents a gap of time. Between the book of Malachi and the beginning of the Gospels, there is a 400-year gap, 400 years of history. And during that 400 years of history, there is silence from God. There is no new special revelation coming from Him. Now, he still revealed himself to mankind through his creation in a general sense, but there was no new specific revelation given for a period of 400 years. No visions, no dreams, no angelic visitations, no theophanies, no prophecies, no voices, 400 years. This is sometimes referred to as the years of silence or the silent years. And during those 400 years, the nation of Israel waited, and they longed for a deliverer to come and to get them out of their bondage. The kingdom of God had been promised. The kingdom of God had been ushered in by the promise of a deliverer, by the promise of a Messiah who would come and take them away from the bondage from all that they were experiencing. And as we discovered last week, as we covered the entirety of the Old Testament in just one message, we saw that this kingdom of God was promised. We saw that this kingdom of God was partially fulfilled in the nation of Israel, and we also saw that the kingdom of God was prophesied to come in the future. We saw that the kingdom of God existed in the Garden of Eden. The kingdom of God exists today, and the kingdom of God will one day exist in the future. In the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it was as God intended it to be. God's people in God's place, with God's presence, enjoying God's provision under God's protection. Today, we experience the kingdom of God in those who have placed their faith in Christ, in God, and one day, we will once again experience His complete presence and His complete perfection when we get to Revelation chapter 19, 20. And 22, the kingdom of God was partially fulfilled in the Old Testament. We saw that promise to a man by the name of Abram with three promises. We will give you a land, the promised land. I will make you a great nation, people, and I will make you a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. We saw this promise of a kingdom through a people called the nation of Israel. We saw it partially fulfilled as God called that people out and he gave them that land as he protected them and as he provided for them, as he was present with them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, as he took up residence in the tabernacle, as he took up residence in the temple, we saw it partially fulfilled. We saw his providence over them in the law. But then we also saw that God prophesied that a kingdom would come, that all of our sin would be taken care of, that all of our tears would be wiped away, that there would be no more sin, there would be no more pain, there would be no more suffering, and that is to come in the future. And so the nation of Israel had been waiting. 400 years they waited, and they longed for a deliverer. They longed for someone to come. In fact, if you have your uh, Bible open there to that page in between the Testaments, I just want to draw your attention to the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi. If you're on your Bible, just click on Malachi chapter 4, and this is how the Old Testament ends. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and great day and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that they will not come and smite, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. There's a great promise in the end of the Old Testament. We see two beholds there. He says, behold, the day is coming. There's a great and terrible day of the Lord that is coming. There is a judgment that is coming on the world. Behold, that day of judgment is coming. But he also says, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah. I'm going to send you someone before I send the deliverer to warn you about that day of judgment. There will be a deliverer who is coming. Judgment is coming, but grace can be found. And so the nation of Israel waited. 400 years they anticipated a deliverer who would come just as Moses had come to deliver them out of Egypt. They waited for another deliverer. 400 years, history changes. The Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians who were the, the world-dominant powers all pass away. Alexander the Great leads the Greeks in to conquer the world, and after Alexander and the Greeks comes the great Roman Empire with their Caesars. Everything is changed for the nation of Israel. And as we begin the New Testament, the nation of Israel is under the thumb, under the heel of the Roman government, and they're asking for someone, come and deliver us. Come and save us. 
And as the Old Testament ends with promise after promise of a great great deliverer who would come and establish his kingdom, as we turn to Matthew chapter 1, we might be disappointed in how it begins. 400 years of silence, 400 years waiting for a mighty deliverer, and we get Matthew chapter 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 400 years of silence and we get a genealogy. Most of us, when we're reading through the Bible, we typically skip right over the genealogies. Admit it, it's okay. We think, how much can we possibly learn from a genealogy? So-and-so had so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. We're inclined to slide right by these, and yet Matthew and Luke both begin their Gospels with the genealogy of Jesus. Mark begins his gospel by taking us to a voice crying out in the wilderness, a voice that cries out and fulfills the quotes of Isaiah and the quotes in Malachi. John in his gospel begins before the very beginning. He goes back further than the rest of them. In John's gospel, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You go down to verse 14, and it says, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us. But Matthew chooses to begin with a genealogy. Last week we looked at all of the Old Testament. Today we're going to look at all of the New Testament, save the book of Revelation. Just as an overview to get an idea of what this biblical understanding of a worldview is. And you can take the the New Testament and divide it into four sections. There are the Gospels, which I've just described, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gospel is the word good news. This is the Christ event. These are four eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ coming to earth, living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death, bodily resurrected from the dead, and ascending into heaven. It is the gospel. After the gospels, we have a historical book, the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells us about the empowerment of the church and the spread of the gospel from a small group in Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the world. The majority of the New Testament is made up of what are known as epistles or letters. These are letters from the apostles to the churches to encourage them, to challenge them, to give them the doctrine that they needed to live the life that God had called them to. And then finally, we have the book of Revelation, which is prophetic in nature. It tells us how all of it comes together in the end, how God redeems his people and he restores his creation But the entirety of the New Testament tells one story, just as the entirety of the Bible tells one story, and that is the kingdom of God, the redemptive work through Jesus Christ. And after 400 years of silence, I would imagine the nation of Israel wanted more than a genealogy. I imagine they wanted more than so-and-so was so-and-so's father and -and so-and-so had so-and-so children. But let's take a moment and look at this genealogy, just these, this first verse of Matthew chapter 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The very first words in this tells us that the deliverer has come. The Messiah, the anointed one, the one you have been waiting for has arrived, and his name is Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. He is from the line of David because God promised that from the line of David, the ruler of Israel would remain on his throne forever. 
He's from the line of Abraham because Abraham had been promised that you will be a father of many nations and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. It looks so simple, it looks so mundane, and yet in the midst of this simple verse we see that God is fulfilling a promise. The anointed one, the deliverer, has come. The message of the one who broke out in the wilderness John the Baptist, he cried out, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He pointed to Jesus of Nazareth and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus came presenting the kingdom of God. When Jesus came to earth, he came to present himself as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords. He came to present himself as the King of the nation to present the kingdom. When he began his public ministry, he began with the words, the time has been fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. He came to present the kingdom. And last week we defined the kingdom of God in the broadest terms as an eternal sovereign God reigning over the universe. Just in broadest terms, what is the kingdom of God? It is the eternal sovereign God reigning over the universe. We just sang a song that kept saying over and over again, our God reigns. Does he? Absolutely, he does. God reigns over all things, and yet we see a fallen world. We live in a fallen world where it does not appear that God is in control of all things. We see sin, we see suffering, we see evil, and we wonder what is going on. If God is on his throne, then what is happening And we had to redefine the kingdom of God this way. Not only is God, eternal sovereign God, reigning, but in our fallen world where he has given us choice to love him or to reject him, to serve him or to serve ourselves, then the kingdom of God is practically where those who have trusted in him allow him to reign over their lives. Where we say, God, I'm not in control, you are. The promises that God made to the nation of Israel, the promises of a kingdom where he is with his people, providing all things in their presence, taking care of them, is partially fulfilled in the Old Testament. And it is proclaimed in the new. It is partially fulfilled in the nation of Israel, and it is completely proclaimed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Prophesied in the old, presented in the new, the Bible teaches us that Jesus came to his own, and yet his own did not receive him. The Bible says Jesus came to the nation of Israel. He was a child of Abraham. He was an Israelite. He was of the nation of Israel. He came and said, I am your Messiah. I am your king. I am your deliverer. And he presented himself to the nation of Israel, but the nation of Israel did not receive their long-awaited Messiah. They chose to reject him. They chose not to accept him. You're in Matthew chapter 1. Would you just turn a few pages forward to Matthew chapter 21 with me? If you're in that pew Bible this morning, we're on page 18. And I want you to see a parable that Jesus taught to the nation 
of Israel that has impact on us even today as we begin to have this biblical understanding of who we are in Christ. If you're physically capable, would you stand with me as we read from God's Word? Matthew chapter 21, we're going to begin in verse 33 this morning. Jesus has come and He's presented the kingdom and He's being rejected. Listen to another parable, Jesus said. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to, a vine, to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize the inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we open your words, we pray, Father, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds to understand your truth, that we would learn from it today. And then, Father, that you would change us into your image as a result of what we've learned from your truth. Lord, change an attitude that needs to be changed. Change an action that needs to be changed. Change a lifestyle that needs to be changed. Change a heart that needs to be changed. Father, do your work through your Holy Spirit, we pray. Let us be open vessels to learn and to be changed into your image, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Jesus often used uh, parables to help his disciples understand deep truths. The word parable just means thrown alongside. It means it's a story that's put against a very difficult truth in order to illuminate the truth, to help you to understand it. And Jesus is teaching this parable in order to help us understand deep truths about his kingdom. While condemning those who though offered the kingdom, were rejecting it. Jesus is teaching truth to his disciples about the kingdom while at the same time condemning those who he's presented the kingdom to who have hardened their hearts and are rejecting it. He's telling this story to the religious leaders of the nation of Israel, the Pharisees, the scribes of the day, who were there, who were listening, they were judging, and they were already seeking to destroy Jesus. 
who has come as their deliverer, who has come to help them. Just prior to this parable, Jesus tells another story. He tells the story of two sons who have a father. And the father goes to the first son, and he says, son, I need you to go to work. And the son says, father, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to work. But later on, he goes out and he does the work that the father asked him to do. The father then goes to the other son, and he says, son, I need you to go to work. And the son said, absolutely, father, I will go and do whatever you tell me to do, but he never actually goes out and does any of it. And he asked this question, which of the two did the will of the father? The one that said he wouldn't, but ultimately did, or the one who said he would, who never did? And of course, the answer is, the one who did the will of the father is the one who actually did it. And Jesus is drawing a contrast between two groups of people. The ones who claim to be his children but don't do his work and the ones who are confused over but do the work of God. And what did he say distinguishes these two groups of people? The ones who claim to be and the ones who actually are, the distinction is obedience. The distinction is doing what he's called upon us to do. And he immediately then enters into the parable that we've just read for today, the parable of a vineyard owner who buys a piece of land. He creates a vineyard. He builds it up. He builds a wall around it. He puts a tower within it. He places workers in it, anticipating and expecting them to work that vineyard and to draw the fruit from that vineyard. He then goes on a journey, but he sends a slave back to check and to collect what should be given to the owner of the vineyard. But the vine workers don't want to be held accountable. They don't like it. And so whenever the vineyard owner would send a slave, they mistreated him. They beat one. They stoned another. They killed a third. And so the vineyard owner sent more. They still didn't like it, and so they killed them too. Finally, the vineyard owner said, I know what I'll do. I'll send my own son. Surely they'll respect my own son. Surely when I send my son, they will offer the produce of the vineyard that I've so graciously allowed them to work. I'll send my son. But instead of respecting the son, they also kill him and try to steal his inheritance. And Jesus asked the Pharisees, what should the landowner do? with these vine workers? What should the owner do with the ones who have been working the field but not doing any production? What should the vine owner do with the ones who have killed all the slaves that he sent to collect? What, what should they do? And their response was, I love this, he should, he should bring those wretches to a wretched end. They acknowledged that those vine workers were not only not doing what they were supposed to do, that they were wicked in how they acted. And they deserved a wretched end. What they didn't understand is that as they were responding, they were condemning themselves. They had no idea what he was talking about when he was talking about them the whole time. They were a nation that had been called out to be unique. They were a nation that had been called out to represent his character to the world. 
They were a nation that were supposed to be faithful to him and let everybody else know that there is only one God. He is a good God. And instead of doing what God called them to do, instead of being faithful and representing his character, which they often said they would, but they never did. In fact, God sent messengers to them. He sent prophets to the nation of Israel and said, you're not doing what I called you to do, and unless you change, judgment is coming. And you know what they did to the prophets? They beat them. They stoned them. They killed them. And so God says, in my loving kindness, in my eternal patience, I'll send some more. And he sent them more. And they rejected them as well. And now as we come to the New Testament, the son of the vineyard owner has come to the nation of Israel. And they have rejected him as well. And they will kill him and seek to steal his inheritance. Just four quick things I want you to hear this morning. I want you to hear the kingdom presented, the kingdom rejected, the kingdom accepted, and the kingdom expected. The kingdom is presented. Jesus Christ came presenting himself to the nation of Israel as their long-awaited Messiah. He fulfilled all the prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to the coming of that Messiah. He told them the kingdom of God is at hand. In city after city and town after town, he would go into the synagogues, he would unravel the scroll, he would read the messages about the Messiah, and he would, un, he would scroll them back together, and then he would stand and he would say, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Your deliverer is here. He healed the sick. He caused the blind to see. He caused the lame to walk. He rose the dead back to life. He did all the things that the Son of God was said that he would do, and yet they didn't receive him. They did not receive him because he wasn't the type of deliverer they were looking for. They didn't receive him because he wasn't the type of Messiah they thought he should be. They weren't wrong to be waiting for a deliverer. As a matter of fact, they weren't wrong to be waiting for a deliverer who would literally sit on a throne. They weren't wrong to wait for a deliverer who would literally sit on the throne of David. But what they were wrong about was the type of Messiah that he would be, the type of deliverer that he would be. They were expecting someone to come along and deliver them from Roman oppression. They wanted a military leader. They wanted someone to come and look like David and fight armies like David did and overthrow the Romans and restore Israel to its prominence. And when Jesus started feeding thousands of people with small amounts of food and he began healing diseases, many people started to crowd around him and become interested in him. In fact, there were many within the nation of Israel who began to say, we want him to be our king. It even says that they tried to force him one time to become their king after he had fed the multitudes. After all, who wouldn't want that kind of king? A king who can call armies together. A king who could feed armies with very little supplies. A king who, when their army is hurt in battle, can heal their wounds. And a king who, when their army is killed in battle, can raise them back to life. Who wouldn't want that king? 
That's the king they were looking for. But that's not who Jesus was. He had come to deliver them from bondage, but he'd come to deliver them from the bondage of their sin. He'd come to deliver them from the bondage of death. God had created, sin had corrupted, judgment was coming, and God sent him to be the deliverer. And so Jesus came to present the kingdom of God to the nation of Israel. He came to present himself as their king and their deliverer. But not only was the kingdom presented, the kingdom was rejected. Some of the nation of Israel desired to follow Jesus. Some of them even recognized him as the true Messiah. They proclaimed him to be the Messiah. But the religious leaders of the day quickly rejected him. Not because he didn't fulfill the expectations of the Messiah, but because they had already hardened their hearts. They had already made up their minds. As Jesus presented truth to them, they couldn't be bothered with the facts because they'd already determined that they didn't need him. They'd hardened their hearts and they decided, we don't need to be saved spiritually. They were self-righteous. We've got the law. We can observe the law. We're, we're righteous people. They had hardened their hearts to a need for a religious, spiritual Savior. They'd become reliant upon human tradition. They'd become reliant upon religion and ritual. This is all I need to make me right with God. What do I need a spiritual Savior for? They'd hardened their hearts. And they weren't willing to give up the kingdom that they already had. That's a sad statement. They weren't willing to give up what little things they could possess here on earth to gain the immeasurable riches that they could have for all eternity. They could not see beyond their own noses to see that God was bringing a kingdom that was far greater than any kingdom that could ever be here on earth. And so the religious leaders hardened their hearts. They didn't think they needed him. They wanted what they had. And so sadly, many of the people of Israel also turned against Jesus. When he was feeding them and healing them, they were all about it. They were all in. But when he began to talk about a kingdom and being a Messiah who would go and suffer and die, and then when he began telling them that in order to be a part of that kingdom, they had to partake in his body, his flesh, and his blood... John chapter 6, verse 66 says they began to leave him in droves. They abandoned him. Hear me. If the nation of Israel would have accepted Christ as their Messiah, Jesus would have established his millennial kingdom on earth at that time. But they did not. And it did not surprise God any more than the fall of Adam and Eve did not surprise him. God already had a plan in place, an eternal plan. He knew that he would send his son. He knew that he would present himself to the nation of Israel. He knew that the nation of Israel would reject him. And so God then just ushers in the next part of his eternal plan. His plan to redeem mankind, his plan to restore the kingdom. And do you know what the next part of his plan is? 
You are. You are the next part of his plan. It's called the church. The church age. Where Jesus has told them, I'm going to take from you and I'm going to give it to another who's going to produce the fruit there of it. Look at verses 42 and 44 back in Matthew chapter 21 quickly this morning. Jesus said to them, to the Pharisees, have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people, producing the fruit of it. Jesus quotes from Psalm 118 and he says, have you never read scriptures? that the one that the builders have rejected would become the chief cornerstone. The one is Jesus Christ. The builders are the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. And he says, don't you understand that when you reject Jesus Christ, he is going to become the chief cornerstone, not of the nation of Israel, but he's going to become the chief cornerstone of a new nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation known as the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 22, you may want to jot this down. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You know what Ephesians 2 just described? The church. The church. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, and you are being fitted in to the temple of God, God's presence in the world, God's people together, Jew and Gentile coming into one family, into one nation. When Jesus called his apostles, how many did he call? How many apostles did Jesus call? call? Twelve. Interesting number, isn't it? Why twelve? Why not thirteen? Why not forty? Why not fifty? Why twelve? Twelve tribes of Israel, one for every tribe. Not because they now represent Israel, but because they now represent the new Israel. Jesus is putting together a new nation of people. He is calling together a new tribe of people from every tribe and tongue and language around the world to represent him. Hear me say this. All the promises that God has made to the nation of Israel, God will fulfill to the nation of Israel. Every last one of them. Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, God made promises to the nation of Israel that he has not made to the church that he will at some point fulfill them. The church has not completely replaced the nation of Israel in God's eye. There will come a time when the nation of Israel will repent and turn and trust in Christ. We'll see that in the book of Revelation. But for right now, the nation of Israel has been unrepentant in rejecting their Savior And so God has taken them and set them aside for a period of time. They are in the divine woodshed right now. And God has set them aside and he says, I'm going to take the work that you were supposed to be doing 
you said you would do it, but you never actually did it. I'm going to take it from you, and I'm going to give it to a group of people who are going to bear the fruit of the kingdom of God, the church. And that is who we are today, not because we are physical descendants of Abraham, but because we are spiritual descendants of Abraham. It's not because of our flesh and blood. It is because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Just as Abraham trusted in the promises of God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, so you who are Christ followers have trusted into the promises of God and not by your works, not by your religion have you been made righteous, but by your faith through the grace of God. And we are one family that God has called together. And so, throughout the Gospels, we see God calling this group of people together. Through the book of Acts, we see him calling this group together. Those who would willingly submit to his authority in their lives. Those who willingly would submit to allowing him to have reign in the universe, but in our hearts. We see him calling 12 apostles, 12 Jewish apostles, but we also see him talking to Roman centurions. We see him talking to a Samaritan woman at the well. We see him talking to religious types like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. We, saw, we see him talking to worldly types like the woman caught in adultery and sinners and outcasts all over the place. God is calling together a group of people who represent every tribe, tongue, and nation around the world. He is creating his church When he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you know what Jesus said to him? Blessed are you, Simon, son of of John, for flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And upon this rock, I will do what? Build my church. And the gates of hell doesn't have a chance against it. I'm building my church. Jesus is building his church, and that church has a purpose. That church has the same purpose that the nation of Israel had, to be unique, to be distinct, to be called out from amongst the world, to look different, to act different, and to represent his character to the world. Not to keep it to ourselves, but to share the grace and the love and the amazing goodness of God with everybody that we possibly can. That is who we are. And another thing, God doesn't say, hey, good luck, go after it. We get to the book of Acts, and we don't go far in the book of Acts until you get to Acts chapter 2, and he says, go and wait in Jerusalem. Don't go try to do what I'm sending you to do on your own. You go wait in Jerusalem, and in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost takes place, and the Holy Spirit of God comes down out of heaven, and he indwells those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. He empowers us to do what he's called us to do. You want to talk about a people of God. You want to talk about God's kingdom. God's kingdom is where God reigns, and God's reign is in our hearts, and his presence is in our lives. Why does he do all of this? Because you get to Revelation chapter 7, and you see the great throne of God in heaven. And around that throne are people from every tribe, and every tongue, and every nation of this world worshiping him. Everyone bowing down before his throne, worshiping him, because God has created us, and his name will be made great in all the earth. And in Revelation, we see that take place. God's present kingdom is where he reigns, and he's called us out 
to represent him well. The kingdom presented, the kingdom rejected, but there are some who accepted. There were some Jews who accepted him. There were some Gentiles who accepted him. There were Samaritans that accepted him. There were men, there were women, there were free men, there were slaves, there were people of all ethnicities. They all trusted in Jesus Christ and they believed. Finally, I want you to see this. The kingdom is still expected. It's been rejected. It's been accepted by some. But for those of us who have accepted it, we're still expecting it. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom? Is now the time when you're going to set up your kingdom? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times and the epics. You don't worry about that. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the othermost parts of the world. And immediately after that, the Bible tells us that he was lifted up into heaven. He ascended into heaven. And all the disciples stood there and did this. As I would have. Watched him go up into the clouds. And while they're watching him go up into the clouds, two people show up about amongst them. And they say, hey, uh, why are you looking up there? This same Jesus who has ascended into heaven, he's coming back just the way he went. Go do what he told you to do. Church, Jesus Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, he is establishing his kingdom here on earth. There is a now of the kingdom, and then there is a not yet of the kingdom. We are in the now of the kingdom, but we have not yet seen what it's going to be. It's amazing to be a part of the family of God. It is amazing to have hope and peace and joy and allow God to reign in our lives, but it fails in comparison to what it's going to be one day. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, At the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death. There is a now. We see Jesus crowned with glory because he died on a cross, but we haven't yet seen what he's going to be. You get to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. It says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and, and what we will be has not yet been made known to us. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. Oh, there is a now of the kingdom of God, but there is an awesome not yet to the kingdom of God. And Jesus Christ is returning. He is going to establish his kingdom. He is going to redeem all his children, and he is going to restore his creation. The king came and offered this kingdom, but some had hardened their hearts and they rejected it. One day when Jesus Christ returns, he will establish his kingdom and fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 51 and verse 3. One day he's going to return and he's going to establish a literal kingdom here on earth. One glorious day, his original perfect creation will be just that again. Next Sunday, not next Sunday, next Sunday is Lord's Supper. Next Sunday we're just going to thank God for who he is. We're just going to praise God for who he is. 
the Sunday after that, December 1st, man, I, I can't wait to preach that message because in that message, man, we're talking about the rapture. We're talking about when Jesus Christ takes us to be with him. We're talking about tribulation here on earth, the purpose of that tribulation, that horrible time of judgment that'll be here. We're going to talk about the nation of Israel returning and the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about the millennial kingdom where he establishes his reign for a thousand years on earth. We're going to talk about the great judgment seat of God, and then we're going to talk about how he puts it all back the way it's supposed to be when he gives us the new heaven and the new earth in our eternal state. Don't miss that message because that is the story of God's Word. But until that time, until He comes back or He calls us home, He is building His church. He is calling people out to represent Him. And He is presenting Himself, even today, as the Deliverer. And you have a choice. This is the amazing thing about God. He doesn't force Himself upon you. He just presents all the truth. He presents all his love. He presents all his grace. And he says, it's your choice. You can either choose to worship me now or you will worship me later. But the choice is yours. And the benefits are beyond imagination. And that's just the now. I can't wait for the not yet. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you've come presenting yourself through your son Jesus Christ to solve our sin problem, to take away our sin, to make us right with you, to redeem us, and to restore your creation. And Father, we have a choice. Just as people in the Old Testament had a choice, just as people in the New Testament had a choice, we have a choice. We can, we can either choose to acknowledge you as our sovereign creator, as our gracious redeemer, as our father, as our friend, as the Lamb of God who's taken away our sins. We can either choose to accept that and glory in you and make your name famous. Our Father, you've given us the right to reject you. Father, what a monumental decision. With glorious results or eternally tragic results. And so, Father, my prayer this morning is twofold. My first prayer is for those who have never gotten to a point in their lives where they know they, they need to make a decision to either let you reign in their lives or to let something else or someone else reign in their life. I pray for those who've, who've never gotten to a point in their life where, where they've acknowledged their need for you and your love for them. I pray for those who don't know what it's like to live under your grace and under your mercy and in your presence and with your empowerment and with your peace. Father, I, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would just, just
just overwhelm them today. Overwhelm them with truth, overwhelm them with love. Father, I pray that they would cry out to you today, Father, I need you. Father, I love you. Forgive me. Forgive me for my sin. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. I believe that he is the Son of God. I believe he is my deliverer. I want to be with you forever. I want to live with you right now. Thank you for forgiving my sins, God. Father, I pray for those that are in the room right now who I just pray that the Holy Spirit is drawing them to you even this moment. Father, for others of us who have already gotten to that point in our lives where we're already saying that you are reigning in our lives, Father, I pray that it wouldn't just be what we say, but it would be what we do. That we wouldn't just give you lip service and say, God is the Lord of my life, and yet I'm running everything. Father, I pray that we truly would put you on your throne, the throne of our heart, the throne of our lives, the throne of our universe, and say, you are in control. And Father, even more than that, I pray that you would help us to see people as you do. I pray that you would help us to be broken over sin in our own lives. And Father, I pray that we would be broken over the lostness in others. Pray that you would open our eyes to see people with your heart, with your compassion, with your love. Father, put people in our minds, put people in our lives, put people in our paths that we can't help but tell them about what you have done and who you are. Lord, be glorified, we pray. You're deserving of it. We're just going to sing a song as we close this morning. And my commitment or my encouragement to you is this. Number one, if God just kind of all over you right now because you've never gotten to that point in your life where you've said, I need to do something about this relationship with God. I need to trust in him. I'm going to ask you to do something a little scary. We're, we're all going to be standing and singing. I'm just going to be down here minding my own business. And if you are at that point where you're just struggling with that, would, would you do me the favor and just come down and say, Pastor, I don't, I don't know exactly what's going on. I don't exactly know what I'm saying here, but can we talk more about this? I, I think I need this Jesus Christ. I would love the privilege to talk with you some more. There'll be other folks. Uh, we'll, we'll have some ladies down here. Ladies, if you want to come talk to a female. Here's my other encouragement. For those of us that I've trusted in Christ, would you just put one person in your mind that you know, that you love, that does not have the hope that you have in Christ? Would you just pray, God, put somebody on my mind right now, put somebody on my heart right now. And then would you just begin to pray for them daily? And would you just begin to seek out opportunities to speak into their life the truth that you know. And while we're singing and while we're praising and while folks are coming to talk about Jesus, would you just lift those people up in prayer? Just all around the room, can you imagine names going up to the throne of God? And 
maybe write that name down, put it in your Bible, maybe write that name down, put it on your rearview mirror of your car, maybe write it down, put it on the mirror in your bathroom so that every day you see that name and every day you're reminded, oh yeah, I need to be praying for them. I need to be seeking opportunity to share God with them. Father, you take this time of invitation. Lord, be glorified in it. Thank you for your eternal plan. Thank you for Jesus Christ. He is our King. He is our Lord. He is reigning forever. Let him reign in our hearts and lives this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing. You respond. Pray for those folks. If you want to talk about Christ, if you're looking for a church to join and be a part of what God's doing, we'd love to talk to you more about that. I approach the throne of glory Nothing in my hands I bring But the promise of acceptance From a good and gracious King
good and gracious King. Monday and Tuesday of this week, we were at the uh, Florida Baptist Convention. I heard a lot of good preaching um, for a change. Got to hear some good preaching. Um, and I heard a lot of wonderful things. One of the things that just kind of stuck out in my mind is one of the pastors said, when believers bring, sinners get saved. And one of the things that I know some of us are heartbroken about is we're not seeing as many baptisms as we'd like. We're not seeing as many salvations as we know we should be seeing. And that's because we need to be sharing the gospel more. We need to be telling more people that are lost about the love of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying you need to, I'm saying we need to. And so that one person, put them on your heart, put them on your mind. Talk to them about Christ. Invite them to come to church because I promise you if they come to church, they're going to hear the gospel. And as believers bring, as they bring the gospel, as they bring people to church, sinners get saved. Intentionality. We're intentional about a lot of things in our lives. Why aren't we more intentional about sharing the gospel? So as a church, let's go out this week and be intentional. That one person, pray for. Imagine if even half of us did that, what God would do. That's always scary when Randy Sheets gets up with a microphone in his hand, and I'm not aware of it beforehand. The only one more uncomfortable right now than me is Pastor Bob. <laughs> so if I could have you come up with Darlene. Mandy, come up. Join Darren, please. Uh, Pastor Bo, please come up. And Pastor Trent with Jesse, please come up. It's not scary. Don't worry. So many of you may know that October is Pastor Appreciation Month. But that's also Go Conference Month, and that's also uh, Trunk or Treat Month and whatnot. So rather than getting on top of those ministries, we decided to wait to the thankful month of November. And uh, so we just wanted to let you know that we are thankful for each of you and your wives and your ministries. Uh, we're thankful for your uh, friendship. We're thank you f thankful for your faithfulness to just proclaim God's word and we're thankful for your leadership. So please accept these small tokens of our appreciation and thankfulness for each of you. It is it is our great honor to serve together. We, we love serving together. It's, it's a blessing to serve on this staff. Um, but it, it's our great honor to serve amongst you. Um, not many pastors have the blessing that we have to serve amongst a people like you. And so we praise God for that opportunity. We thank you. We can't wait to see what God's going to do as we work together to share his kingdom. Love you guys. Thank you. Have an awesome week.